Hi, I'm David Rothkopf, the CEO of the DSR Network and host of the Deep State Radio podcast. Here at DSR, we have always believed that in a world as complex, fast-moving, and full of risks as ours, we all need access to the best minds. That is why we have created the leading network for expert podcasts on the issues of the day you care about. We go in-depth on politics, the law, national security, foreign policy, intelligence, defense, climate, and new technologies with regular and special guests that are the leading voices in their fields. We also offer daily updates on global news, our DSR Daily, and on a key story of the day through our partnership with the New Republic. That is why over a million times a month, people like you choose to spend time with our hosts and guests. Membership is what supports this, and members get special benefits, including bonus content in virtually all of our podcasts. It's a big deal, and it's a good deal. Our monthly membership price is going to go up for the first time in our history on March 1st. So now is the time you can lock in our founder's rate of just $5 a month. To do so, go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership. It's that easy, but don't delay. Today's rates will only be available for a few more weeks. Join us, support us. Go to the dsrnetwork.com right now. Thank you. Nine, 12, 10. 28 2 23 This is Deep State Radio coming to you direct from our super secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of Snark in Washington DC and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. It's that time of the week when we talk about politics. It's been an eventful week in politics, and uh, I, who I'm David Rothkopf, um, uh, am delighted to welcome our friend and resident savant here, Simon Rosenberg. Simon is, of course, a political consultant for a long time here uh, in DZ, an advisor to many on the Democratic uh, side. Uh, and is currently the proprietor of the Hopium Chronicles, which is a um, substack that you can go to and that many people do to follow what's going on in uh, 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 these elections and this critical election year. Welcome, Simon. Always good to be here, David. Um, you uh, you have been on Hopium the past <laughs> few weeks, um, m- mobilizing your yep. followers to help. In the uh, special election that took place in New York's third congressional district, uh, that was ultimately won by the guy that uh, you and all of us were backing, Tom Swazi, yep. yep. uh, by almost eight points over I the know. Republican um, challenger. And I thought this is a good place to start um, with your take on it. But before that, you know, congratulations. You mobilized some people. I think they made a difference. Yeah, listen, I mean, we raised $115,000 from over 2,000 contributors. We had hundreds and even thousands of people, you know, make calls and text and write postcards and, and canvas. Uh, I'm really proud. You know, this was, this was a, 
what's happened now because of the national grassroots and all of you out there who are proud patriots who are fighting to make sure your democracy doesn't slip away, we now have this vast community of people who are going to work on elections and it, where it really magnifies in, the, in these kinds of one-off single special elections where this entire national grassroots community can really focus. And if you heard Tom Swazi's victory speech, he said, we made 2 million phone calls <laughs> into the district. You know, we made, we wrote hundreds of thousands of postcards, hundreds of thousands of texts. We had hundreds of thousands of doors knocked on. I mean, this just wasn't possible, you know, four years ago, six years ago. We didn't have the technology. We didn't have the you know, sophistication of the grassroots to have that kind of outpouring of engagement. And what's happening is this national elevated sense of intensity we're seeing from Democrats across the country is pushing the performance of our party to the upper end of what's possible in election after election after election. You know, I talked to Tom at the beginning of the election. I We were in touch through the whole election. And he didn't really understand what part of the job I did was I had to walk him through what had happened since he had run last and that there was this national grassroots community that was going to engage and that he needed to set up a team to interface with them to make sure the work they were doing, you know, wasn't duplicative and it was sort of strategic. And they did that and they took the advice of a lot of people. And so this was a very sophisticated campaign and that it not only did it execute well on the ground in the district, but the way it interacted with national grassroots Democrats was sort of a model for how this stuff's going to be done going forward. You know, I would estimate that of the two million calls made, a million and a half 1.6 million were made from outside the district, right? I mean, that's how significant this all is. And so we take what it does, is it takes a race that we could win by one, two, or three points and turns it into an eight-point win. And so this is a big superpower, a huge new muscle we have as Democrats. Um, and it's just the hard work of everyday people who want to see better for their country. Uh, well, you, uh, as you say, um, the, the wind could have been one, two, or three points. The, the polls projected uh, four points. Um, uh, and so uh, a, a number of folks, including you and and our other friend, Tom Bonnier, have, have noted that, that that overperformance is consistent with the overperformance we've seen in a variety of other special elections, interim elections, um, uh, uh, and in the 2022 um, uh, main congressional cycle elections. Um, and and so, do you, you know, uh, a accept the premise that that this was another example of overperformance, and if so, um, you know, B is why in the past elections we've seen some uh, argument on a regular basis that it had to do with Roe v. Wade and abortion as an issue. This election seemed to turn more, uh, at least from you know the the punditry I've read on immigration. So I wonder also how those two things interplay. So I think I think it's really important to recognize what's happening. And, and it's because it's very significant. And it's not really what you're hearing from the national media, which is that in 2018 and 2020, we, you know, had two really great elections, we won the House and Senate back, we took away the White House from Trump and MAGA, it was a route, we routed MAGA in 2018. And 2020. And, um, you know, and, and deservingly so, right? I mean, Trump had been a terrible president and we unseated MAGA. But what happened next is really important and I think is not adequately understood in our daily, in our daily commentary, in our daily discussions, is that usually or almost always the party in power loses power at 
in off year and special elections and midterm elections that you know the other party gains is sort of the ebb and flow of our politics it happens almost every time it is the norm which is why so many people thought a red wave was going to come because red waves always come the waves against the party in power always come and so there was assumption that it would come in 2022 and that's not happened what's happened in fact is that we keep overperforming we keep winning um, in election after election all over the country, now in over three calendar years, 2022, 2023, and 2024, this has been happening with greater intensity because of Dobbs. I mean, Dobbs to me was a before and after moment in our politics. And I think something really broke in the Republican Party in when Dobbs happened, that it was a bridge too far. It made the Republican Party too ugly, even for Republican voters. And so what you've seen across the country of every election of all kind, is that we keep overperforming and, and they keep struggling. As Steve Kornacki said the other night when I was on MSNBC, the, the only places where that hasn't really happened was in New York and California and in Florida and Texas in 2022. And that's why this election was so significant, because this was a place where we had underperformed in 2022, and there were only a handful of places in the whole country and so the fact that we've been able to now win in a place that we didn't do so well in 2022, one of the only places we didn't do so well in 2022, is has to be terrifying for the Republican Party because it means that we're repairing and, and figuring out how to win in the places that in recent years during this time when we've been in power that uh, we haven't been winning. And so it's really important to recognize that you know when I began my Hopian project in early 2023. We wondered whether or not the strong overperformance that we had seen was going to play out in 2023, and it did all over the country, right? We flipped the Wisconsin Supreme Court seat. We won two of the largest Republican-held cities in the country. We took away the six-week abortion ban in Ohio. We took away the Virginia State House and, and, and the hope, their hope and fantasy of a 15-week abortion ban being an escape hatch for them. We, you know, Governor Bashir gained ground in Colorado, I mean, in, in Kentucky from four years ago. All across the country in 2023, we saw expansion, growth, victory, overperformance, Republican struggle. And then the question became, David, is would it show up in 2024, right? It was this now, this thing we've been seeing for a year and a half, and it has shown up in 2024. You know, you've seen Trump, you know, um, the, uh, the turnout in Iowa was anemic for the Republicans, despite spending $100 million. Trump only won 56,000 votes out of 750,000 registered Republicans. Um, in New Hampshire, he underperformed polling by 10 to 15 points in New Hampshire. Um, and, and and their party now we know is broke. And we know that state parties in the battleground are atrophying. Their party is broken and broke right now and underperforming again in New York, three, and in Orlando, Florida, in a really critical state house race a few weeks ago. In contrary, we keep overperforming. And so this basic dynamic that we've seen of Democrats overperforming expectations, overperforming public polls, Republican underperforming and struggle, which showed up immediately after Dobbs, has continued now throughout 2023 into the early part of 2024. It's a central reason I'm so optimistic about our chances in November. Well, you know, they have uh, Lara Trump now as co-chairman of the <laughs> RNC. By the way, I mean... I, you know, I have this theory about why her, right? It's because all of his kids are under investigation and 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 contributed to a her, his kids. First of all, in New York State, had been banned 
from being able to take executive roles in nonprofits, right, uh, based on the fraud that their family committed prior to his presidency. But now they're all materially involved in what is one of the largest financial frauds in the history of the United States, which tr- Trump is about to get a judgment against him any day, right? And so they couldn't tomorrow, actually- Tomorrow, we're Tomorrow. So they couldn't actually, none of them, I think, were actually eligible to be able to go in into a position at the RNC. And so they, the, last, the last one standing, the only one that they could go to was her. And I don't know if you've seen her- public statements and the interviews. I mean, she's going to be, ter- you know, another reason why Republicans are going to flee MAGA and the Republican Party this year. And I mean, they have to convince wealthy Republicans to give them money <laughs> and and that it's going to be spent wisely and they're not going to get in legal trouble or anything else. It's a, going to be a big problem for them. I mean, the, the in- installation of Laura Trump is going to cost them more money than it's going to raise, in my view. And it's another sign of what I wrote today in my Substack is that, you know, we keep kicking their ass all across the country and MAGA is melting down. I mean, MAGA is melting down in the House. It's melting down at the RNC presidential level. It's melting down every day that Donald Trump's makeup, you know, flows off of his face at the end of the day. It's melting down in every way possible. And, and, I, and I think the scale of what we're witnessing the sort of the unprecedented dysfunction, collapse, craziness, madness. It's so, at some point the media is going to have to reconcile that this is not Democrat Republican, you know, left versus right. It's competent, modern, successful versus you know batshit crazy on the other side and dangerous. And you know, this is critical that we establish this contrast together in the coming months. Yeah, no, no. Every time you know something goes wrong for them. Their response to it is to figure out something worse. And, and, and you know, uh, the only thing I can say about all the Trumps being disqualified um, is that you, like everybody else, like Donald, leave out poor Tiffany. And, you know, where is she in all this? Why can't she chair the Republican Party? Um, I think that it's a sign of her intelligence and that she learned from her older brothers and sisters, right? It's not going anywhere near her dad and her dad's business. You notice the two youngest ones aren't involved in his business at all, right? You know, I was the fifth kid in my family, and I always felt that I had the blessing of learning from all the mistakes my older brothers and sisters made. I think Tiffany and now, um, you know, his son, right? Baron. Baron are demonstrating enormous wisdom and, and education by watching you know, the crap that all their brother, older brothers and sisters have gotten involved in by hanging out with their dad. No question about it. So let's, <laughs> let's, let's go back seriously to this Swazi um, win. The yeah. House um, majority is now three. Uh, there are a couple of special elections coming up. At some time today, we are recording this on Thursday, I, I think New York State's going to make a decision about how it's laying out its congressional districts. And in the worst case scenarios I've seen, it, it implies a Democratic pickup of one. Uh, it might be two. Um, uh, and there are eight or 10 or 12 other elections across the country where it looks like they're, you know, they're in Biden districts and uh, there's a good chance they might go Democratic. And so it looks like it's possible that the Democrats may have good performance on the House side. Do you agree with that? And what should people look for? So two big takeaways, uh, and you asked me 
this and I didn't really answer it earlier. So let me let me let me get to it now. There are two big takeaways from the Swazi win as you're at the, that you've raised. One is the issue, you know, in my view, one of the significant things that have happened in our election in the last few months is that the core talking points the Republicans use against Biden have evaporated. You know, their attack was that we were in recession while well, the economy is growing. Inflation was too high. Now inflation's back to pre-pandemic levels. We, you know, the crime was raging, but now we know that crime rates are, and murder rates are down substantially in 2023, including, by the way, in New York. Fourth is that he was waging this war on energy. And we now know that, you know, oil, domestic oil and renewable production hit their highest levels ever in 2023. Clearly the worst war on energy that you could mount. And so those core arguments that had been the core of everything they had said about Biden for the last two years have all evaporated in recent months. And so what they had left was the border and immigration. This was their big bludgeon they were going to use against Biden. And because of their zealotry and their extremism and Trump's impulsivity, right, they took a huge win and turned it into a huge loss last week by now positioning themselves as the party that wants the border to stay chaotic and immigrants to continue to come into the country and now we're able to position ourselves as the ones who are trying to get a handle and solve this border and immigration problem because of their mismanagement of the issue and their boy, cowardly speaker who blew this thing for them last week. And the reason we know this is because this was heavily litigated in New York 3. This was the central attack against Swazi. And Swazi was able to, in a place where this stuff is really very present in the in the discussion. And he was able to say, no, 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 the Republicans are the ones who want the border to be chaotic and immigrants to be coming to the country. We want to solve the problem. And, and they were able to neutralize what the Republicans believed was going to be one of the central attacks against us in, in 2024 and was only is the last remaining serious indictment of Biden that they really have outside of his age and Hunter and everything else, which at the end of the day, I don't think is going to amount to very much. We can talk why about that in a minute. But the second big takeaway is that we just took back a Biden district. There are 17 districts that Biden won, that Republicans won in 2022. This is the central battleground of the 2024 House races. And this is has to be terrifying, what just happened to the other 16 Republicans in Biden districts, because we're now in the general election. This isn't the midterm anymore. This is going to, the election is going to look a lot more like what just happened in New York than it did in 2022. And if you're those other 16 guys and you just watched Democrats win a district that we lost last time by seven and a half points and win it by eight, you're not a very happy person today. And so there is terror reigning. You know, the chaos, you know, imagine being a Republican having in a swing moderate district, having to defend the craziness that you're seeing here. They know they got nothing. And that's the critical thing is that right now the Republicans have got nothing. You know, they, you know, they got nothing. They got nothing on Biden. They have no big argument about why you should elect them. I mean, in fact, the compelling argument is why they're dangerous and we need to run away from them as, as fast as possible in, in recent weeks. And so I feel very bullish about what we're seeing here. Listen, I was very involved in this race. There wasn't a single person involved in this race who thought we were going to win by eight points. Nobody. I mean, we were hoping to win by two or three, right? In a, in a region of the country we had not been doing very well in, where there was a very powerful Republican machine you know, and uh, and where they spent a lot of money. The Republicans and by the way, a pretty dysfunctional Democratic machine too, right? And, and New York has been a place where we have underperformed, right? Like it's been, you know, you can't get A's in every class, right? And New York has been a place where we've struggled a little bit. And, and this, you know, just like we've seen in Florida, 
where we've had a couple of very consequential wins in very competitive races in the last year, you know, where we're starting to sort of get back into gear and, and start rebuilding our, our, our party and our capacity in Florida. This was a big shot in the arm in a state that we need to have a good year in in 2024 to win the House back. Look, the Democrats are clearly favored to win the House back. I think we're clearly favored to win the presidential race. And I know that there's not unanimity on that. And then I think the Senate's going to be up for grabs up until Election Day. Um, in, in terms of what is being done and not being done in the House, not you know blocking Ukraine, not getting things done on security, et cetera, et cetera, is it your sense that Political developments in Washington, D.C. now have any effect long term on what happens in November? Yes, for two, a couple of reasons, right? One is we already saw polling over the summer and fall that when the McCarthy fiasco happened and he was ousted, that, that, that we saw it in tracking polling that House, the standing of House Republicans in the battleground districts fell. People saw it. And they were, and there was a reaction to it, and there was a degradation of the House Republican brand, not the overall Republican brand, because people aren't stupid, right? They can, they can see the difference, right? They can see the dysfunction in the House, and we could see it in the polling that there was movement away from the Republicans while that was going on. And I think the way to think about an election, oftentimes, as I try to describe it, is that it's like cement drying, right? Like, you know, things happen that create the final imprint of an election. And this chaos around uh, McCarthy really hurt the House Republicans. And now what's happened in the last few weeks, I think, has really hurt them even further. Um, you know, and how do we know that? My favorite moment in the last couple of days is that Dana Bash on CNN on election night said that, you know, I went to polling locations today in the district and I talked to people and I had several Republicans say to me that I'm not voting for, you know, that I'm voting for Swazi because, you know, I thought the Republican Party was the party that wanted to fix the border. And now that's the Democratic Party. And I'm angry at my party for having looked so hypocritical and ridiculous. She claimed that this came out of people's mouths, right, on when she was talking to people outside polling locations. And so, yes, I do think this stuff matters. I do think that people are now starting to pay attention. I also think when the ads are flying and, you know, um, and there's a campaign on, those voters are paying more attention to things than just the average voter. And in the closing days of this election, what you saw was outrageous historic hypocrisy and malevolence and dysfunction coming out of the speaker and the speaker and the Republican leadership. And I think it really cost them. And I think the warning sign for them on this is that, you know, it's very hard for me to understand how they unravel all this, how they put lipstick on the MAGA pig, so to speak, you know, as we head into the election. And this is the, you know, the, the most dysfunctional, dangerous, reckless, um, you know, extreme uh, party that we've seen in modern times. And people already didn't like MAGA heading into this election cycle. And if you didn't like MAGA, man, you got a whole lot more reasons now to really not like MAGA and to run away in the other direction. We just saw New York 3. This was an eight, a 16-point swing, David, in a race. I mean, this election that we lost by seven and a half points was only, you know, 18, 16, 18 months ago, right? And so it's a huge swing. And I do think they're on the run. I mean, I think Mike Johnson 
and I wrote about this today in my Substack. Mike Johnson is almost certainly the worst speaker in the history of the United States. And that's saying something, right? And because he's, think about what they're now running on and what they're asking us to accept. They want Putin to win. They want the Western alliance to collapse. They want Israel to be overrun by their adversaries. They want the border to be in chaos. They want immigrants to be flooding our cities. Um, they want, you know, we're still, we don't have a budget. They're now threatening the financial integrity of the United States by going through yet another potential government shutdown in the next few weeks. They're a wrecking ball on American society, our security, and our economy. And I think it's one of the reasons we're going to crush them in the elections this fall. You know, I've talked to you offline, and one of the things that you flagged uh, is this uh, budget issue and the possibility of a government shutdown that, frankly, most people have been a little distracted by. You've got Trump trials, you've got, you know, interim elections, you've got a lot of other things. Uh, and yet today, remarkably, in something that could only happen in Washington and nobody else is paying attention, the Republicans decided to take a couple weeks off for, you know, midwinter holiday or something and left themselves three working days between now and the deadline for getting this budget issue resolved. What's the downside for the country? Look, I, I think that if if you go back to what I just said, and that what the Republican with Donald Trump and MAGA is doing now is trying to destroy our alliances that have kept us secure for generations. They're trying to ensure that one of the, a genocidal maniac prevails and starts to threaten Europe, that they are wanting to make to threaten the security. You know, they claim that the border right now is our highest security challenge. And their decision is now they're going to make it worse, right? Because they're not only denying money to DHS that it needs to manage the border flow to make it so that more immigrants come into the country, but they're also now starting to derail the operations of DHS by impeaching you know, Ali Mayorkas and interfering. So they're actually doing everything they can on something that they have argued is the highest security challenge the country faces. They're making everything worse on purpose, right? And then finally, they may now, adding to that wrecking ball, they may actually try to blow up the American economy in the next few weeks by forcing a government shutdown. And so if MAG is threatening our security and our the security of our allies, threatening our security on the border, threatening the economic integrity and strength of the United States, when Donald Trump is not in office, think about what's going to happen if he is in office. And, and the question about whether or not this kind of desperation and this chaos that they're trying to bring is a sign that they know they're losing. I mean, you only cheat and do crazy things when you're losing, right? If he was winning and confident, they wouldn't have to resort to these kind of extraordinary things that they're doing right now. And it's, a, to me, a sign that they, are, they know they're losing, they're getting desperate. And what happened in New York, and this is why this is so significant, they just, Trump's view of the border, right, is I'm going to make it chaotic and we'll benefit from it. Well, he made it chaotic and they lost an election over it, right? It actually, the exact opposite happened because people don't want chaos. We had chaos during COVID. We got to the other side. People want to go back to normal lives. And it's very possible that Trump's entire electoral strategy is to try to destroy the country because he knows he can't win now, because he knows he can't win a, a, a traditional election. And so he's got to do, he's got to essentially pull the fire alarm, right? And hope that something somehow, what comes out the other end of it is better than what he has now. I don't think it will. 
But the problem is that he could do enormous damage to all of us. He's already doing enormous damage to the United States by this reckless delay of the funding for Ukraine and Israel and Gaza, by the way, if you care about that. And he's going to, he potentially could do, you know, remember for your listeners, the fiscal year starts in the federal government. The way our budgeting works is that you're supposed to do the appropriations and appropriate all the money in January through October. You pass all that. And then the, bud- the fiscal year begins on October 1st. And so if the fiscal year doesn't start and we go into these continuing resolutions, then what happens is that the budget of every single department and agency in the United States just rolls over from the previous year. So if you have new programs or you have new things you have to do, you can't actually implement them because you're working off last year's budget. And so when they roll it over, usually it's for a month or two months. We're now into five months. The fiscal year is five months. We're fi- the budget is five months late. We're now almost halfway through the fiscal year, and we don't, we're still operating off of last year's budget. The lev- we've never been here before, David. We're in an unprecedented place. And, and it's incredibly dangerous for the United States because it's disabling the ability of the federal government to operate the way Congress intended it to on purpose, right? This is on purpose, this kind of sabotage that we're seeing. And I worry, you know, I worry, look, I, I, I'll just say for your listeners, because of what you do, I've always felt about Trump when you're wondering, like, what in the world is he doing? If you go to this place in your head and say, if Donald Trump was an agent of Vladimir Putin, I've often found that that's the, the Occam's razor. That's the easiest way to explain his actions. I think right now, you know, there's a question of whether or not this Russian-aligned candidate, Donald Trump, is openly trying to sabotage and harm the United States as a candidate. And the question is, what do we do about that? I mean, we're going we're gonna to win politically, electorally. We're winning. But there's going to be enor- potentially enormous damage done to the country along the way. And we all better wake up to what's going on here, right? I mean, I think we've been a little bit slow as a country to react to the threat that Trump, it's not the Trump presidency that's a threat to our security and our economy, it's his candidacy. And we got to we gotta readjust our understanding of that a little bit, I think. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, we can debate whether Trump's motivated to help Russia or Trump's motivated to help Trump, but there's no question but that his motivations lead to damage to the United States in either event. And specifically with this um, government shutdown, which nobody's really paying any attention to, or you know, further continuing resolutions, or just dysfunction, uh, that gets you to a bad place with ratings agencies. Um, they can lower the rating of the country. The cost of borrowing can go up. Uh, you know, most uh, you know of the world's large economies this year are uh, in recession or precariously teetering on the edge of recession. We're not. We're doing well. Trump's already said he wants the economy to tank because he thinks that works to his advantage. Um, but this could be the tipping point. This could be something that could um, set us off. Uh, and so I think you make a really, really important point that, frankly, a lot of people have not made right now. And that is, as bad as Trump getting reelected would be, um, his candidacy right now is 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 also producing a great deal of damage and increasing risks that we face a lot. Let me ask you one last question. Um, uh, you know, I look at, we look at the schedule. I guess you've got South Carolina primary coming up. Nikki Haley's going to lose by a lot. 
If you want to talk about that, you can. But it seems to me like the main things on the political agenda for the next few weeks, oddly enough, are legal trials. Uh, We found out today, the day we're recording this, that the New York trial, uh, which I think is often underestimated because it reveals Trump's instinct from the outset was to mislead voters and to defraud the electorate. Um, that's going to begin and to, and to cheat on his wife, by the way. Right? Yeah. yeah. Well, cheat on everything <laughs> with a pro- with a prostitute. Yeah. Ch- cheat on everything. I mean, I, 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 not a prostitute with a porn star. I apologize. Yeah. I don't no, want to. No, I don't yeah. want to defame anybody. But no. Uh, and Stormy Daniels has a lot yeah, of fans at this yeah, point. Yeah, but yeah. Um, I, I, I would say I, I typically don't disagree with you on anything. But earlier you said if you're losing, that's when you cheat. But I think this case demonstrates that. Trump cheats. That's just what he does. He is a he's a he's a crook. He's a fraudster. Uh, but anyway, you've got that trial. You've got a judgment coming on the uh, case against his companies uh, as, as early as tomorrow. Um, uh, you've got the Supreme Court likely in the next couple of weeks to make a decision on Trump's immunity, which could set the clock. Uh, specious immunity arguments could set the clock ticking on the Jack Smith. Uh, Judge Chutkin trial in New York City. Um, hopefully, this idiocy in Fulton County will end soon. That trial will get back on track. I, there's going to be a lot of bad news around Trump. Um, and, you know, I, I hear people saying, well, you know, this is an election, and, you know, Steve Kornacki does some numbers, and it's, it's all like it's every election year. We've never seen this before. Um, doesn't this have an effect, do you think, cumulatively, that we don't understand? Yeah. There are three points I want to make about this, and these are great questions. Um, One is that I think from a national security standpoint, we have to recognize that if Trump gets a $300 million judgment against him tomorrow, he'll be functionally broke and will have lots of secrets that he could sell to people. And that we're, you know, as you know, in the security world, the basic thing that is the most fearful thing about people who hold secrets in the United States is if they're in financial duress, and then they have an incentive to actually sell those secrets to hostile foreign powers. Well, we're about to have that situation with Trump. And if Trump wins the nomination within a few months, he's going to be starting to get daily presidential level security briefs being told the nation's secrets in real time on a daily basis in a time when he's broke and could sell all those secrets. And we're about to face a really kind of unprecedented security challenge over his presidency, particularly amplified by the fact that he will be, you know, functionally insolvent and and potentially as early as tomorrow, by the way. And so this is um, a a situation that I think is going to start to become the question about whether Biden can allow him to be given these security briefings, given that he stole America's secrets, shared them with others, and is now financially insolvent is going to start to become an air, a thing that you and your brethren are going to start debating. But I think it's part of this story and because it's going to amplify all of his pathologies and his criminality in a way that isn't currently available to us, right? The second thing I would say is that I do think that there are, in my view, six things that voters didn't know about Trump in 2020 that they're going to learn about him in the next few months that I think will be impactful to this election. Number one, is that he raped E. Jean Carroll in a department store dressing room. Second is that he is one of the he committed one of the largest financial frauds in American history. Third, that he um, led an insurrection 
tried to overturn American democracy for all time and is and failed, but he's now promised to finish the job if he becomes president again. Fourth, that he did steal America's secrets. He lied to the FBI about it, and he shared those secrets with other people. Fifth, that he and his family have taken more money corruptly from foreign governments than any family in American history. And that sixth, he ended Roe and is singularly responsible for ending Roe. Those six things were not part of Trump's brand in 2020. And I will just tell you, as somebody who's been in this business for a long time, I have no idea how he survives any one of those six things, let alone the six things together. And so it's another reason why I think you're right. I think this stuff is very consequential. And I think what's been happening is that we've been, the way we've been sort of dealing with the legal problems, this euphemism, rather than saying the crimes that he committed, the legal problems that he has has been like waiting for Mueller. We've been waiting for trials. Politically, we don't have any reason to wait. Politically, we should be introducing this information to our networks and to our listeners and to our communities because these are things that happen. They're fact on the ground. We don't need court cases to determine the outcome. These are part of his the story of Trump now. And so I think it is really going to matter. And then, and then finally, I think that this idea that he has no ability to put positive information into the, into the daily news stream about himself is also really important. In 2020, he was campaigning from the White House, right? He used the White House in unprecedented ways. He was the president. He had all the majesty of the presidency. Now he's campaigning from the courthouse, not the White House. And it means that his campaign has no ability to, to put positive information about him into the daily discourse, whereas Joe Biden is campaigning from the White House. Joe Biden has an entire government every day that is actually going to tell the story of the success of the Biden presidency. And I think over time, this is really going to wear him down. That for it's possible that, you know, we actually have a communications advantage in that regard over the next uh, seven months. And they've tried to make, or the next nine months, and they've tried to make the argument that this poor bereaved man being prosecuted by the deep state, you know, your brethren in the deep state, David, um, are, you know, is going to make him a sympathetic figure. And, you know, I mean, it's just the most preposterous thing. I mean, the way I like to think about this, just to finish, is that, um, you know, you can dye his hair, paint his face, strap a girdle on him and a diaper to pump him full of speed. And this guy's never going to look like a president ever again. And, and I think that, you know, we are seeing that play out right now. Every time that he's in a courthouse, he's losing votes with swing voters. And this is not helping him. There's nothing that's going to happen here that's going to help him or make him look sympathetic in any step of the way. And he's, you know, he's getting his just desserts, right? I mean, this guy is far, you know, he's the most unfit person to run for the presidency in our history. Shame on the Republican Party for rallying behind this serial criminal. And, you know, he's going to be dragged through the courts this year, as he should be. This is this is what should happen to him. The wheels of justice must turn on him. And if they don't turn on him, then all is lost, right? The, our rule of law will be gone in America. And so, you know, this is going to be a, I think that this has been heavily overly discounted by the commentariat in in Washington, like everything that Trump does, all of his problems are overly discounted. I don't think this is going to be overly discounted by the American people. It's not. Just as you were talking, one of the things that strikes me is if Trump is rendered functionally um, uh, insolvent, um, 
then the only way that he's going to be able to pay for all these court cases is with campaign money. And that's why he wants Laura Trump in there. And he's going to start funneling money from the RNC and Republican coffers into defending himself in court, as he's done in the past. And that's going to put every other Republican candidate at a disadvantage. It it is going, look, he's in, there's an argument to be made right now that the Republican Party is in the beginning stages of a death spiral, right? I mean, the RNC is broke. State parties are broken. Dozens of Republican, leading Republicans across the country have been indicted. Many more are under investigation. We just saw two epic flameouts of, of Republican Party chairs and incredible scandals in Arizona and in Florida. And yes, what you're describing is if Trump starts diverting large amounts of his campaign war chest, I mean, he spent $50 million on legal bills last year when he was not in trial, right? And and he spent more money last year than he took in politically, which is shocking, right? The, the opportunity here for them, the chance when, you know, as you're a forecaster or you're a strategist, you know, what is the likely scenario? I mean, the, the, the scenario of him and the Republican Party going into some kind of profound death spiral and being heavily rejected by the American people for this collective ugliness that we're describing today, I think is rising very rapidly. Because when he starts plundering the RNC, who's going to give the RNC any money? I mean, what? yes, they'll have the loyalists that are going to give money no matter what. But if you're the marginal Republican donor, you're not going to put up with that stuff. You know, and and this is where I think that, you know, you really game all the stuff out as we're doing today. And it's one of the reasons I've been so optimistic is because to me, the basic reality of this election is that Joe Biden is a good president. The country is better off. The Democratic Party is strong in winning elections all across the country. And they have Trump. And Trump is the most unfit person to run for president in all of American history. He's far more degraded and uh, dangerous and extreme than he was in in 2020. He's got those six things hanging over him that we discussed earlier that I think are going to further degrade his brand. And then finally, something we didn't really talk about, which is that his performance on the stump is far more erratic and deranged and disturbing than it was even in 2020 and 2016. And so when you put all that together, I think we're looking at the, this an incredibly ugly package that's already been rejected in 2018, 2020, 2022, and 2023. And it's going to be far uglier and far more menacing than it was and more leveling than it was before. You know, good luck, guys, selling that. You know, put you can't put lipstick on the Trump pig. I just don't think it's doable politically. And so when I put all that into the blender, right, like or into the chessboard, our path for victory is very clear. Theirs is not. And it's why I think we should all be really optimistic about this election in 2024. I thought you had like an AI computer, the Simonatron, that we that all this Simon was, Copilot. I mean, <laughs> what, what can I? It, it'll be the Hopium. Well, we call it the Hopium Cavalry, right? Is yeah. the cavalry that comes in? But I'm going to need some kind of uh, Simon GPT. Yeah, right. Exactly, or Hopium GPT. You know, I, I I'd say, David, for your listeners, is that. One of the things I realized in recent years, when I there was this amazing television show, I think it was on Netflix, The Queen's Gambit. Oh yeah, about the young female chess player. I was a competitive chess player growing up, and I stopped playing chess when I was like in seventh grade, and I barely played because I burned out and I played too much. 
And but I still I read books about chess and strategy, you know, the middle game, the you know, the end game, and all, all these nerdy things when I was in fifth grade, right? And I realized now when I was watching that show that a lot of my success, frankly, in politics is due to chess and the strategy that you learn and the ability to think ahead and to think four or five, six, seven moves ahead on a chessboard. And that it's the core of what political strategists do, right? Which is you have to be able to move chess pieces and anticipate what the other side's doing and get ahead of all that. And that movie to me, like unlocked all of these youthful things bubbling around in my brain from when I used to play competitive chess. And but it's you're right. I mean, it, it is. I, I for me, I don't have Chat GTP. I have chess, and chess has been my superpower. I think in that's my, a good book. You should write that. The, that right book. I've always, <laughs> I've always, because my I didn't have anything so fancy. I was sort of came up as in, as a theater director, and I always thought about writing a book called Everything I Know About Politics I Learned in the Theater. Um, but everything I know about politics I learned in chess would be better. <laughs> <laughs> and and smarter and you should definitely maybe it could be an article but in any event uh, it's yes. always good to have you here and thank you when David. i hear you talk of the maga death spiral i understand why they call it the hopium chronicles you're just cheering us up with talk of their demise and uh, it all it all has the benefit of sounding grounded in fact and logic and uh, i you know it's, well, when I, I saw the president recently, and he said he told me that he read Hopium Chronicles, and he looked at me and said, you know, I think some of the things you write about me are true. And <laughs> and it was it was actually very funny. I didn't do it as well as he did, you know, sort of dark Irish humor. But I really appreciated the fact that he admitted that maybe some of the things I was writing actually could be true. And I was grateful for that. <laughs> well, that's why we invite you back here every couple of weeks, because we too believe some of what you say is true. Um, thank anyway. you, David. All right. Thanks a lot. And thank okay. you, everybody, for listening. And we'll be back with more each and every day. So join us again. Bye-bye. Go, fi go fight win, everybody. Go fight win. Exactly.